CD3 The disc rolled into winter. Winter in the ram tops could not honestly be described as a magical frosty wonderland, each twig laced with the confections of brittle ice. Winter in the ram tops didn't mess about. It was a gateway straight through to the primeval coldness that lived before the creation of the world. Winter in the ram tops was several yards of snow, the forest a mere collection of shadowy green tunnels under the drifts. Winter meant the coming of the lazy wind, which couldn't be bothered to blow around people and blew right through them instead. The idea that winter could actually be enjoyed would never have occurred to ramtop people, who had 18 different words for snow, all of them unfortunately unprintable. The ghost of King Varence prowled the battlements, bereft and hungry, and stared out across his beloved forests and waited his chance. It was a winter of portents. Comets sparkled against the chilled skies at night. Clouds, shaped like mighty whales and dragons, drifted over the land by day. In the village of Razorback, a cat gave birth to a two-headed kitten. But since Grebo, by dint of considerable effort, was every male ancestor for the last thirty generations, this probably wasn't all that portentous. However, in Badass... A cockerel laid an egg and had to put up with some very embarrassing personal questions. In Lonkratown, a man swore he'd met a man who had actually seen with his own eyes a tree get up and walk. There was a short, sharp shower of shrimps. There were odd lights in the sky. Geese walked backwards. Above all of this flared the great curtains of cold fire that were the Aurora Coriolis, the hub lights whose frosty tints illuminated and coloured the midnight snows. There was nothing the least unusual about any of this. The ram-tops, which, as it were, lay across the disc's vast magical standing wave, like an iron bar dropped innocently across a pair of subway rails, was so saturated with magic that it was constantly just charging itself into the environment. People would wake up in the middle of the night, mutter... Oh, it's just another bloody portent. Go back to sleep. Hogswatch night came round, marking the start of another year, and with alarming suddenness, nothing happened. The skies were clear, the snow deep and crisped like icing sugar. The freezing forests were silent and smelled of tin. The only things that fell from the sky were the occasional fresh showers of snow, a man walked across the moors from Razorback to Lancretan without seeing a single marsh light, headless dog, strolling tree, ghostly coach or comet, and had to be taken in by a tavern and given a drink to unsteady his nerves. The stoicism of the ram-toppers developed over the years as a sovereign resistance to the thaumaturgical chaos, found itself unable to cope with the sudden change. It was like a noise which isn't heard until it stops. Granny Weatherwax heard it now as she lay snug under a pile of quilts in her freezing bedroom. Hogswatch night is traditionally the one night of the disc's long year when witches are expected to stay at home, and she'd had an early night in the company of a bag of apples and a stone-hot water bottle, but something had awoken her from her doze. An ordinary person would have crept downstairs, possibly armed with a poker, Granny simply hugged her knees and let her mind wander. It hadn't been in the house. She could feel the small, fast minds of mice and the fuzzy minds of her goats as they lay in their cosy flatulence in the outhouse. A hunting owl was a sudden dagger of alertness as it glided over the rooftops. Granny concentrated harder until her mind was full of the tiny chittering of the insects in the thatch and the woodworm in the beams. Nothing of interest there. She snuggled down and let herself drift out into the forest, which was silent except for the occasional muffled thump as snow slid off a tree. Even in midwinter, the forest was full of life, usually dozing in burrows or hibernating in the middle of trees. All as usual. She spread herself further, 
to the high moors and secret passes where the wolves ran silent over the frozen crust. She touched their minds, sharp as knives, higher still, and there was nothing in the snowfields but packs of vermin. The vermin is a small black-and-white furry creature, much framed for its pelt. It is a more careful relative of the lemming. It only throws itself off small pebbles. Everything was as it should be, with the exception that nothing was right. There was something. Yes, there was something alive out there. Something young and ancient and... Granny turned over the feeling in her mind. Yes, that was it. Something forlorn. Something lost. And... Feelings were never simple, Granny knew. Stripped them away, and there were others underneath. Something that, if it didn't stop feeling lost and forlorn very soon, was going to get angry. And still she couldn't find it. She could feel the tiny minds of chrysalises down under the frozen leaf mould. She could sense the earthworms, which had migrated below the frost line. She could even sense a few people, who were the hardest of all. Human minds were thinking so many thoughts all at the same time that they were nearly impossible to locate. It was like trying to nail a fog to the wall. Nothing there. Nothing there. The feeling was all around her, and there was nothing to cause it. She'd gone down about as far as she could to the smallest creature in the kingdom, and there was nothing there. Granny Weatherwax sat up in bed, lit a candle, and reached for an apple. She glared at her bedroom wall. She didn't like being beaten. There was something out there, something drinking in magic, something growing, something that seemed so alive it was all around the house, and she couldn't find it. She reduced the apple to its core and placed it carefully in the tray of the candlestick. Then she blew out the candle. The cold velvet of night slid back into the room. Granny had one last try. Perhaps she was looking in the wrong way. A moment later she was lying on the floor with the pillow clasped around her head. And to think she had expected it to be small. Lancre Castle shook. It wasn't a violent shaking, but it didn't need to be the construction of the castle being such that it swayed slightly even in a gentle breeze. A small turret toppled slowly into the depths of the misty canyon. The fool lay on his flagstones and shivered in his sleep. He appreciated the honour, if it was an honour, but sleeping in the corridor always made him dream of the fool's guild, behind whose severe grey walls he had trembled his way through seven years of terrible tuition. The flagstones were slightly softer than the beds there, though. A few feet away, a suit of armour jingled gently. Its pike vibrated in its mailed glove until, swishing through the night air like a swooping bat, it slid down and shattered the flagstone by the fool's ear. The fool sat up and realised that he was shivering. So was the floor. In Lord Felmet's room, the shaking sent cascades of dust down from the ancient four-poster. He awoke from a dream that a great beast was tramping round the castle and decided with horror that it might be true. A portrait of some long-dead king fell off the wall, the duke screamed. The fool stumbled in, trying to keep his balance on a floor that was now heaving like the sea, and the duke staggered out of bed and grabbed the little man by his jerkin. What's happening? he hissed. Is it an earthquake? We don't have them in these parts, my lord, said the fool, and was knocked aside as a chaise long drifted slowly across the carpet. The duke dashed to the window and looked out at the forests in the moonlight. The white-capped trees shook in the still night air. A slab of plaster crashed onto the floor. Lord Felmet spun around, and this time his grip lifted the fool a foot off the floor. Among the very many luxuries the Duke had dispensed with in his life was that of ignorance. He liked to feel that he knew what was going on. The glorious uncertainties of existence held no attraction for him. It's the witches, isn't it? 
growled, his left cheek beginning to twitch like a landed fish. They're out there, aren't they? They're putting an influence on my castle, aren't they? Marion, Uncle, the fool began. They run this country, don't they? No, my lord, they never... Who asked you? The fool was trembling with fear in perfect antiphase to the castle, so that he was the only thing that now appeared to be standing perfectly still. Um, you did, my lord, he quavered. Are you arguing with me? No, my lord. I thought so. You're in league with them, I suppose. My lord, said the fool, really shocked. You're all in league, you people, the duke snarled. The whole bunch of you. You're nothing but a pack of ringleaders. He flung the fool aside and thrust the tall windows open, striding out into the freezing night air. He glared out over the sleeping kingdom. Do you all hear me? He screamed. I am the king! The shaking stopped, catching the duke off balance. He steadied himself quickly and brushed the plaster dust off his nightshirt. Right then, he said. But this was worse. Now the forest was listening. The words he spoke vanished into a great vacuum of silence. There was something out there. He could feel it. It was strong enough to shake the castle, and now it was watching him, listening to him. The Duke backed away very carefully, fumbling behind him for the window catch. He stepped carefully into the room, shut the windows, and hurriedly pulled the curtains across. I am the king he repeated quietly. He looked at the fool, who felt that something was expected of him. The man is my lord and master, he thought. I have eaten his salt, or whatever all that business was. They told me at guild school that a fool should be faithful to his master until the very end, after all others have deserted him. Good or bad doesn't come into it. Every leader needs his fool. There is only loyalty. That's the whole thing. Even if he is clearly three parts bonkers, I am his fool until one of us dies. To his horror, he realised the Duke was weeping. The fool fumbled in his sleeve and produced a rather soiled red and yellow handkerchief embroidered with bells. The Duke took it with an expression of pathetic gratitude and blew his nose. Then he held it away from him and gazed at it with demented suspicion. Is this a dagger I see before me? He mumbled. Um, no, my lord, it's my handkerchief, you see. You can sort of tell the difference if you look closely. It doesn't have as many sharp edges. Good fool, said the duke vaguely. Totally mad, the fool thought. Several bricks short of a bundle. So far round the twist you could use him to open wine bottles. Kneel beside me, my fool. The fool did so. The duke laid a soiled bandage on his shoulder. Are you loyal, fool? He said. Are you trustworthy? I swore to follow my lord until death, said the fool hoarsely. The duke pressed his mad face close to the fool, who looked up into a pair of bloodshot eyes. I didn't want to he hissed conspiratorially. They made me do it. I didn't want. The door swung open. The Duchess filled the doorway. In fact, she was nearly the same shape. Leonor, she barked. The fool was fascinated by what happened to the Duke's eyes. The mad red flame vanished, was sucked backwards, and was replaced by the hard blue stare he had come to recognise. It didn't mean, he realised, that the Duke was any less mad. Even the coldness of his sanity was madness in a way. The Duke had a mind that ticked like a clock, and like a clock, it regularly went cuckoo. Lord Felmet looked up calmly. Yes, my dear. 
What is the meaning of all this? She demanded. Witches, I suspect, said Lord Felmet. I don't really think, the fool began. Lady Felmet's glare didn't merely silence him. It almost nailed him to the wall. That is clearly apparent, she said. You're an idiot. A fool, my lady. As well, she added and turned back to her husband. So, she said, smiling grimly. Still they defy you? The duke shrugged. How should I fight magic? He said. With words? Said the fool without thinking and was instantly sorry. They were both staring at him. What? Said the duchess. The fool dropped his mandolin in his embarrassment. In, in the guild, said the fool, we learn that words can be more powerful even than magic. Clown, said the duke. Words are just words, brief syllables. Sticks and stones may break my bones. He paused, savouring the thought. But words can never hurt me. My lord, there are such words that can, said the fool. Liar, usurper, murderer. Duke jerked back and gripped the arms of the throne, wincing. Such words have no truth, said the fool hurriedly. But they can spread like fire underground, breaking out to burn. It's true, it's true, screamed the duke. I hear them all the time. He leaned forward. It's the witches, he hissed. Then, then, then they can be fought with other words, said the fool. Words can fight even witches. What words, said the duchess thoughtfully. The fool shrugged. Crone? Evil eye? Stupid old woman? The duchess raised one thick eyebrow. You're not entirely an idiot, are you? She said. You refer to rumour. Just so, my lady. The fool rolled his eyes. What had he got himself into? It's the witches, whispered the duke to no one in particular. We must tell the world about the witches, their evil. They make it come back, the blood. Even sandpaper doesn't work. There was another tremor as Granny Weatherwax hurried along the narrow, frozen pathways in the forest. A lump of snow slipped off a tree branch and poured over her hat. This wasn't right. She knew. Never mind about the whatever it was. But it was unheard of for a witch to go out on Hogswatch night. It was against all tradition. No one knew why, but that wasn't the point. She came out onto the moorland and pounded across the brittle heather, which had been scoured of snow by the wind. There was a crescent moon near the horizon, and its pale glow lit up the mountains that towered over her. It was a different world up there, and one even a witch would rarely venture into. It was a landscape left over from the frosty birth of the world, all green ice and knife-edge ridges and deep secret valleys. It was a landscape never intended for human beings, not hostile, any more than a brick or a cloud is hostile, but terribly, terribly uncaring. Except that this time, it was watching her. A mind quite unlike any other she had ever encountered was giving her a great deal of its attention. She glared up at the icy slopes, half expecting to see a mountainous shadow move against the stars. Who are you? she shouted. What do you want? Her voice bounced and echoed among the rocks. There was a distant boom of an avalanche high among the peaks. On the crest of the moor, where in the summer partridges lurked among the bushes like small whirring idiots, was a standing stone. It stood roughly where the witches' territories met, although the boundaries were never formally marked out. The stone was about the same height as a tall man and made of bluish-tinted rock. It was considered intensely magical because, 
Although there was only one of it, no one had ever been able to count it. If it saw anyone looking at it speculatively, it shuffled behind them. It was the most self-effacing monolith ever discovered. It was also one of the numerous discharge points for the magic that accumulated in the ram tops. The ground around it for several yards was bare of snow and steamed gently. The stone began to edge away and watched her suspiciously from behind a tree. She waited for ten minutes until McGrath came hurrying up the path from Mad Stoat, a village whose good-natured inhabitants were getting used to her ear massage and flower-based homeopathic remedies for everything short of actual decapitation. They worked, which his remedies generally did, regardless of the actual form of delivery. She was out of breath and wore only a shawl over her nightdress that, if McGrath had anything to reveal, would have been very revealing. You felt it too, she said. Granny nodded. Where's Gaither? she said. They looked down the path that led to Lancre Town, a huddle of lights in the snowy gloom. There was a party going on. Light poured out into the street. A line of people were winding in and out of Nanny Og's house, from inside which came occasional shrieks of laughter and the sound of breaking glass and children grizzling. It was clear that family life was being experienced to its limits in that house. The two witches stood uncertainly in the street. Do you think we should go in? said McGrath diffidently. It's not as though we were invited and we haven't brought a bottle. Sounds to me as if there's a deal too many bottles in there already, said Granny Weatherwax disapprovingly. A man staggered out of the doorway, burped, bumped into Granny and said, Happy Ogs Watch Night, <coughs> Mrs. Glanced up at her face and sobered up instantly. Miz, snapped Granny. I'm most rightfully sorry, he began. Granny swept imperiously past him. Come, McGrath, she commanded. The din inside hovered around the pain threshold. Nanny Og got around the Hogs Watch Night tradition by inviting the whole village in, and the air in the room was already beyond the reach of pollution controls. Granny navigated through the press of bodies by the sound of a cracked voice explaining to the world at large that, compared to an unbelievable variety of other animals, the hedgehog was quite fortunate. Nanny Og was sitting by a chair by the fire, with a quart mug in one hand, and was conducting the reprise with a cigar. She grinned when she saw Granny's face. What ho, my old boy, la? She screeched above the din. See you turned up, then. Have a drink. Have two. Watch her, McGrath. Pull up a chair and call the cat a bastard. Grebo, who was curled up in the ingle nook and watching the festivities with one slit yellow eye, flicked his tail once or twice. Granny sat down stiffly, a ramrod figure of decency. We're not staying, she said, glaring at McGrath, who was tentatively reaching towards a bowl of peanuts. I can see you're busy. We just wondered whether you might have noticed anything tonight, a little while ago. Nanny Og wrinkled her forehead. Oh, Darren's eldest was sick, she said. Peanut is dad's beer. Unless he was extremely ill, said Granny, I doubt if it was what I was referring to. She made a complex occult sign in the air, which Nanny totally ignored. Someone tried to dance on the table, she said. Fell into our Reet's pumpkin dip, we had a good laugh. Granny waggled her eyebrows and placed a meaningful finger alongside her nose. I was alluding to things of a different nature, she hinted darkly. Nanny Og peered at her. Something wrong with your eyes, May? she hazarded. Granny Weatherwax sighed. Extremely worrying developments of a magical tendency are even now afoot, she said loudly. The room went quiet. Everyone stared at the witches, except for Darren's eldest, 
who took advantage of the opportunity to continue his alcoholic experiments. Then swiftly as they had fled, several dozen conversations hurriedly got back into gear. It might be a good idea if we can go and talk somewhere more private, said Granny, as the comforting hubbub streamed over them again. They ended up in the wash house, where Granny tried to give an account of the mind she had encountered. It's out there somewhere, in the mountains and the high forests, she said, and it's very big. I thought it was looking for someone, said McGrath. It put me in mind of a large dog, you know, lost, puzzled. Granny thought about this. Now she came to think of it. Yes, she said, something like that, a big dog. Worried, said McGrath. Searching, said Granny. And getting angry, said McGrath. Yes, said Granny, staring fixedly at Nanny. Could be a troll, said Nanny Og. I left best part of a pint in there, you know, she added reproachfully. I know what a troll's mind feels like, Gaitha, said Granny. She didn't snap the words out. In fact, it was the quiet way she said them that made Nanny hesitate. They say there's really big trolls up towards the harp said Nanny slowly, and ice giants and big hairy wasp names that live above the snow line. But you don't mean anything like that, do you? No. Oh. McGrath shivered. She told herself that a witch had absolute control over her own body, and the goose pimples under her thin nightdress were just a figment of her own imagination. The trouble was, she had an excellent imagination. Nanny Og sighed. We'd better have a look then, she said, and took the lid off the copper. Nanny Og never used her wash house, since all her washing was done by the daughters-in-law, a tribe of grey-faced, subdued women whose names she never bothered to remember. It had become, therefore, a storage place for dried-up old bulbs, burnt-out cauldrons, and fermenting jars of wasp jam. No fire had been lit under the copper for ten years. Its bricks were crumbling, and rare ferns grew around the firebox. The water under the lid was inky black, and according to rumour, bottomless. The Og grandchildren were encouraged to believe that monsters from the dawn of time dwelt in its depths, since Nanny believed that a bit of thrilling and pointless terror was an essential ingredient of the magic of childhood. In summer she used it as a beer cooler, It'll have to do. I think perhaps we should join hands, she said. And you, McGrath, make sure the door's shut. What are you going to try? said Granny. Since they were on Nanny's territory, the choice was entirely up to her. I always say you can't go wrong with a good invocation, said Nanny. I haven't done one for years. Granny Weatherwax frowned. McGrath said, Oh, but you can't. Not here. You need a cauldron and a magic sword, and an octogram, and spices and all sorts of stuff. Granny and Nanny exchanged glances. It's not her fault, said Granny. It's all them grimmers she was brought. She turned to McGrath. You don't need none of that, she said. You need headology. She looked around the ancient washroom. You just use whatever you've got, she said. She picked up the bleached copper stick and weighed it thoughtfully in her hand. We conjure and abjure thee by means of this, Granny hardly paused, sharp and terrible copper stick. The waters in the boiler rippled gently. See how we scatter, McGrath sighed. Rather old washing soda and some extremely hard soap flakes in thy honour. Really, Nanny, I don't think... Silence. Now you, Gaitha. And I invoke and bind thee with the balding scrubbing brush of art and the washboard of protection, said Nanny, waving it. The ringer attachment fell off. Honesty's all very well, whispered McGrath wretchedly. But somehow it isn't the same. You listen to me, my girl, said Granny. 
Demons don't care about the outward shape of things. It's what you think that matters. Get on with it. McGrath tried to imagine that the bleached and ancient bar of lye soap was the rarest of scented whatever, undulants or whatever they were, from distant clatch. It was an effort. The gods alone knew what kind of demon would respond to a summoning like this. Granny was also a little uneasy. She didn't much care for demons in any case. And all this business with incantations and implements whiffed of wizardry. It was pandering to things, making them feel important. Demons ought to come when they were called. But protocol dictated that the host witch had the choice. And Nanny quite liked demons, who were male, or apparently so. At this point, Granny was alternately cajoling and threatening the netherworld with two feet of bleached wood. She was impressed at her own daring. The waters seethed a little, became very still, and then, with a sudden movement and a little popping noise, mounded up into a head. McGrath dropped her soap. It was a good-looking head, maybe a little cruel around the eyes and beaky about the nose, but nevertheless handsome in a hard kind of way. There was nothing surprising about this. Since the demon was only extending an image of itself into this reality, it might as well make a good job of it. It turned slowly, a gleaming black statue in the fitful moonlight. Well, it said. Who are you? said Granny bluntly. The head revolved to face her. My name's unpronounceable in your tongue, woman, it said. I'll be the judge of that, warned Granny, and added, Don't you call me woman. Very well. My name is Havertelchepolsk, said the demon smugly. Where were you when the vowels were handed out behind the door? said Nanny Og. Well, mister, Granny hesitated only fractionally. Havertelchepolsk, I expect you're wondering why we called you here tonight. You're not supposed to say that, said the demon. You're supposed to say, shut up. We have a sword of art and the octogram of protection, I warn you. Please yourself. They look like a washboard and a copper stick to me, sneered the demon. Granny glanced sideways. The corner of the washroom was stacked with kindling wood, with a big heavy sawhorse in front of it. She stared fixedly at the demon, and without looking, brought the stick down hard across the thick timber. The dead silence that followed was broken only by the two perfectly sliced halves of the sawhorse teetering backwards and forwards and folding slowly into the heap of kindling. The demon's face remained impassive. You're allowed three questions, it said. Is there something strange at large in the kingdom? said Granny. It appeared to think about it. And no lying, said McGrath earnestly, otherwise it'll be the scrubbing brush for you. You mean stranger than usual? Get on with it, said Nanny. My feet are freezing out here. No, there's nothing strange. But we felt it, McGrath began. Hold on, hold on, said Granny. Her lips moved soundlessly. Demons were like genies or philosophy professors. If you didn't word things exactly right, they delighted in giving you absolutely accurate and completely misleading answers. Is there something in the kingdom that wasn't there before? She hazarded. No. Tradition said that there could only be three questions. Granny tried to formulate one that couldn't be deliberately misunderstood. Then she decided that this was playing the wrong kind of game. What the hell's going on? She said carefully. And no mucking about trying to wriggle out of it, otherwise I'll boil you. The demon appeared to hesitate. This was obviously a new approach. McGrath, just kick that kindling over here, will you? said Granny. I protest at this treatment, said the demon, his voice tinged with uncertainty. Yes, well, we haven't got time to bandy legs with you all night, said Granny. These word games might be all right for wizards, but we've got other fish to fry. Or boil, said Nanny. Look, said the demon, and now there was a whine of terror in his voice. We're not supposed to volunteer information just like that. There are rules, you know. There's some old oil in the can on the shelf, McGrath, said Nanny. If I simply tell you, the demon began. Yes, 
said Granny encouragingly. You won't let on, will you? It implored. Not a word, promised Granny. Lips are sealed, said Magrat. There's nothing new in the kingdom, said the demon. But the land has woken up. What do you mean? said Granny. It's unhappy. It wants a king that cares for it. How? Magrat began, but Nanny waved her into silence. You don't mean people, do you? she said. The glistening head shook. No, I didn't think so. What? Nanny began. Granny put a finger to her lips. She turned and walked to the wash house's window, a dusty spiderweb graveyard of faded butterfly wings and last summer's blue bottles. A faint glow beyond the frosted pane suggested that, against all reason, a new day would soon dawn. Can you tell us why? she said, without turning round. She'd felt the mind of a whole country. She was rather impressed. I'm just a demon. What do I know? Only what is, not the why and how of it. I see. May I go now? Um, please. Granny jerked upright again. Oh, yes, run along, she said distractedly. Thank you. The head didn't move, it hung around, like a hotel porter who had just carried 15 suitcases up 10 flights of stairs, shown everyone where the bathroom is, plumped up the pillows, and feels he has adjusted all the curtains he is going to adjust. You wouldn't mind banishing me, would you? said the demon, when no one seemed to be taking the hint. What? said Granny, who was thinking again. Only I'd feel better for being properly banished. Run along lacks that certain something, said the head. Oh, well, if it gives you any pleasure, Magrat. Yes, said Magrat, startled. Granny tossed the copper stick to her. Do the honours, will you, she said. Magrat caught the stick by what she hoped Granny was imagining as the handle and smiled. Certainly, right, okay, um... Begone, foul fiend, unto the blackest pit. The head smiled contentedly as the words rolled over it. This was more like it. It melted back into the waters of the copper like candle wax under a flame. Its last contemptuous comment, almost lost in the swirl, was, Run along. Granny went home alone as the cold pink light of dawn glided across the snow and let herself into her cottage. The goats were uneasy in their outhouse. The starlings muttered and rattled their false teeth under the roof. The mice were squeaking behind the kitchen dresser. She made a pot of tea, conscious that every sound in the kitchen seemed slightly louder than it ought to be. When she dropped the spoon into the sink, it sounded like a bell being hit with a hammer. She always felt uncomfortable after getting involved in organised magic, or, as she put it, out of sorts with herself. She found herself wandering around the place looking for things to do and then forgetting them when they were half complete. She paced back and forth across the cold flagstones. It is at times like this when the mind finds the oddest jobs to do in order to avoid its primary purpose, i.e. thinking about things. If anyone had been watching, they would have been amazed at the sheer dedication with which Granny tackled such tasks as cleaning the teapot stand, rooting ancient nuts out of the fruit bowl on the dresser, and levering fossilised bread crusts out of the cracks in the flagstones with the back of a teaspoon. Animals had minds. People had minds. Although human minds were vague, foggy things, even insects had minds. Little pointy bits of light in the darkness of non-mind. Granny considered herself something of an expert on minds. She was pretty certain things like countries didn't have minds. They weren't even alive, for goodness sake. A country was, well, was... Hold on. Hold on. A thought stole gently into Granny's mind and sheepishly tried to attract her attention. There was a way in which those brooding forests could have a mind... Granny sat up, a piece of antique loaf in her hand, and gazed speculatively at the fireplace. Her mind's eye looked through it, out at the snow-filled aisles of trees. Yes! 
yes. It had never occurred to her before, of course. It'd be a mind made up of all the other little minds inside it. Tree minds, bird minds, bear minds, even the great slow minds of the trees themselves. She sat down in her rocking chair, which started to rock all by itself. She'd often thought of the forest as a sprawling creature, but only metaphorically, as a wizard would put it. Drowsy and purring with bumblebees in the summer, roaring and raging in autumn gales, curled in on itself and sleeping in the winter. It occurred to her that in addition to being a collection of other things, the forest was a thing in itself, alive. Only not alive in the way that, say, a shrew was alive. And much slower. That would have to be important. How fast did a forest's heart beat? Once a year, maybe? Yes, that sounded about right. Out there the forest was waiting for the brighter sun and longer days that would pump a million gallons of sap several hundred feet into the sky in one great systolic thump, too big and loud to be heard. And it was at about this point that Granny bit her lip. She'd just thought of the word systolic, and it certainly wasn't in her vocabulary. Somebody was inside her head with her. Some thing. Had she just thought all those thoughts, or had they been thought through her? She glared at the floor, trying to keep her ideas to herself, but her mind was being watched as easily as if her head was made of glass. Granny Weatherwax got to her feet and opened the curtains, and they were out there on what, in warmer months, was the lawn. Every single one of them was staring at her. After a few minutes, Granny's front door opened. This was an event in its own right. Like most ram-toppers, Granny lived her life via the back door. There were only three times in your life when it was proper to come through the front door, and you were carried every time. It opened with considerable difficulty, in a series of painful jerks and thumps. A few flakes of paint fell onto the snowdrift in front of the door, which sagged inward. Finally, when it was about halfway open, the door wedged. Granny sidled awkwardly through the gap and out onto the hitherto undisturbed snow. She had put her pointed hat on, and the long black cloak which she wore when she wanted anyone who saw her to be absolutely clear that she was a witch. There was an elderly kitchen chair half buried in snow. In summer it was a handy place to sit and do whatever hand chores were necessary, while keeping one eye on the track. Granny hauled it out, brushed the snow off the seat, and sat down firmly with her knees apart and her arms folded defiantly. She stuck out her chin. The sun was well up, but the light on this hog's watch day was still pink and slanting. It glowed on the great cloud of steam that hung over the assembled creatures. They hadn't moved, although every now and again one of them would stamp a hoof or scratch itself. Granny looked up at a flicker of movement. She hadn't noticed before, but every tree around her garden was so heavy with birds that it looked as though a strange brown and black spring had come early. Occupying the patch where the herbs grew in summer were the wolves, sitting or lolling with their tongues hanging out. A contingent of bears was crouched behind them, with a platoon of deer beside them. Occupying the metaphorical stalls was a rabble of rabbits, weasels, vermin, badgers, foxes, and miscellaneous creatures who, despite the fact that they live their entire lives in a bloody atmosphere of hunter and hunted, killing or being killed by claw, talon, and tooth, are generally referred to as woodland folk. They rested together on the snow, their normal culinary relationships entirely forgotten, trying to outstare her. Two things were immediately apparent to Granny. One was that this seemed to represent a pretty accurate cross-section of the forest life. The other, she couldn't help saying aloud. I don't know what this spell is, she said, but I'll tell you this for nothing. When it wears off, some of you little buggers had better get moving. None of them stirred. There was no sound, except for an elderly badger relieving itself with an embarrassed expression. Look, said Granny. What can I do about it? It's no good you coming to me. He's the new lord. This is his kingdom. I can't go meddling. 
It's not right to go meddling, on account of I can't interfere with people ruling. It has to sort itself out, good or bad. Fundamental rule of magic is that. You can't go round ruling people with spells, because you'd have to use more and more spells all the time. She sat back, grateful that the long-standing tradition didn't allow the crafty and the wise to rule. She remembered what it had felt like to wear the crown, even for a few seconds. No, things like crowns had a troublesome effect on clever folk. It was best to leave all the reigning to the kind of people whose eyebrows met in the middle when they tried to think. In a funny sort of way, they were much better at it. She added, People have to sort it out for themselves. Well-known fact. She felt that one of the larger stags was giving her a particularly doubting look. Yes, well, so he killed the old king, she conceded. That's nature's way, ain't it? You lot know all about this. Survival of the Wasname. You wouldn't know what an heir was, unless you thought it was a sort of rabbit. She drummed her fingers on her knees. Anyway, the old king wasn't much of a friend to you, was he? All that hunting and such? Three hundred pairs of dark eyes bored in at her. It's no good you all looking at me, she tried. I can't go around mucking about with kings just because you don't like them. Where would it all end? It's not as if he's done me any harm. She tried to avoid the gaze of a particularly cross-eyed stoat. All right, so it's selfish, she said. That's what being a witch is all about. Good day to you. She stamped inside and tried to slam the door. It stuck once or twice, which rather spoiled the effect. Once inside, she drew the curtains and sat down in the rocking chair and rocked fiercely. That's the whole point, she said. I can't go around meddling. That's the whole point. The Lattes lurched slowly over the rutted roads towards yet another little city whose name the company couldn't quite remember and would instantly forget. The winter sun hung low over the damp, misty cabbage fields of the Stowe Plains, and the foggy silence magnified the creaking of the wheels. Howell sat with his stubby legs dangling over the backboard of the last Lattie. He'd done his best. Vitola had left the education of Tom John in his hands. You're better at all that business, he said, adding with his usual tact. Besides, you're more his height. But it wasn't working. Apple, he repeated, waving the fruit in the air. Tom John grinned at him. He was nearly three years old and hadn't said a word anyone could understand. Howell was harbouring dark suspicions about the witches. But he seems bright enough, said Mrs. Vitola, who was travelling inside the latte and darning the chain mail. He knows what things are. He does what he's told. I just wish you'd speak, she said softly, patting the boy on the cheek. Howell gave the apple to Tom John, who accepted it gravely. I reckon them witches did you a bad turn, missus, said the dwarf. You know, changelings and what not. There used to be a lot of that sort of thing. My great-great-grandmother said it was done to us once. The fairy swapped a human and a dwarf. We never realised until he started banging his head on things. They say... They say this fruit be like unto the world so sweet, or like, say I, the heart of man so red without and yet within, unclued. We find the worm, the rot, the flaw. However glows his bloom, the bite proves many a man be rotten at the core. The two of them swivelled around to stare at Tom John, who nodded to them and proceeded to eat the apple. That was the worm speech from the tyrant, whispered Howell. His normal grasp of the language temporarily deserted him. Bloody hell, he said. But he sounded just like... I'm going to get Vitona, said Howell, and dropped off the tailboard and ran through the frozen puddles to the front of the convoy, where the actor manager was whistling tunelessly, and yes, strolling. What ho, Bazugda Hiara!
killing insult in dwarfish, but here used as a term of endearment, it means lawn ornament. He said cheerfully. You've got to come at once. He's talking. Talking? Hal jumped up and down. He's quoting, he shouted. You've got to come. He sounds just like... Me, said Vitola, a few minutes later, after they had pulled the lattice into a grove of leafless trees beside the roadside. Do I sound like that? Yes, chorused the company. Young Willikins, who specialised in female roles, prodded Tom John gently as he stood on an upturned barrel in the middle of the clearing. Here, boy, do you know my speech from Please Yourself? he said. Tom John nodded. He is not dead, I say, who lies beneath the stone, for if death could but hear. They listened in awed silence as the endless mists rolled across the dripping fields and the red ball of the sun floated down the sky. When the boy had finished, hot tears were streaming down Howell's face. By all the gods, he said, when Tom John had finished. I must have been on damn good form when I wrote that. He blew his nose noisily. Do I sound like that? said Willikins, his face pale. Vitola patted him gently on the shoulder. If you sounded like that, my bonnie, he said, you wouldn't be standing ass deep in slush in the middle of these forsaken fields with nothing but a liberated cabbage for thy tea. He clapped his hands. No more, no more, he said, his breath making puffs of steam in the freezing air. Backs to it, everybody. We must be outside the walls of Stolat by sunset. As the grumbling actors awoke from the spell and wandered back to the shafts of the lattes, Vitola beckoned to the dwarf and put his arm around his shoulders, or rather, around the top of his head. Well, he said, you people know all about magic. Or so it is said, what do you make of it? He spends all his time around the stage, Master. It's only natural that he should pick things up, said Howell vaguely. Vitola leaned down. Do you believe that? I believe I heard a voice that took my doggerel and shaped it and fired it back through my ears and straight into my heart, said Howell simply. I believe I heard a voice that got behind the crude shape of the words and said the things I'd meant them to say, but had not the skill to achieve. Who knows where such things come from? He stared impassively into Vitola's red face. He may have inherited it from his father, he said. But... And who knows what witches may achieve, said the dwarf. Vitola felt his wife's hand pushed into his. As he stood up, bewildered and angry, she kissed him on the back of the neck. Don't torture yourself, she said. Isn't it all for the best? Your son has declaimed his first word. Spring came, and ex-King Varence still wasn't taking being dead lying down. He prowled the castle relentlessly, seeking a way for a way in which its ancient stones would release their grip on him. He was also trying to keep out of the way of the other ghosts. Champot was all right, if a bit tiresome, but Varence had backed away at the first sight of the twins, toddling hand in hand along the midnight corridors, their tiny ghosts a memorial to a deed darker even than the usual run of regicidal unpleasantness. Then there was the Trodulodite wanderer, a rather faded monkey man in a furry loincloth who apparently happened to haunt the castle merely because it had been built on his burial mound. For no obvious reason, a chariot with a screaming woman in it occasionally rumbled through the laundry room, as for the kitchen. One day he'd given in, despite everything old Champot had said, and had followed the smells of cooking into the big, hot, high, domed cavern that served the castle as kitchen and abattoir. Funny thing, that. He'd never been down there since his childhood. Somehow kings and kitchens didn't go well together. It was full of ghosts. But they weren't human. 
They weren't even proto-human. There were stags, there were bullocks, there were rabbits and pheasants and partridges and sheep and pigs. There were even some round blobby things that looked unpleasantly like the ghosts of oysters. They were packed so tightly that in fact they merged and mingled, turning the kitchen into a silent, jostling nightmare of teeth and fur and horns, half-seen and misty. Several noticed him, and there was a weird blarting of noises that sounded far off, tinny and unpleasantly out of register. Through them all, the cook and his assistants wandered quite unconcernedly, making vegetarian sausages. Varence had stared for half a minute and then fled, wishing that he still had a real stomach so that he could stick his fingers down his throat for forty years and bring up everything he'd eaten. He'd sought solace in the stables, where his beloved hunting dogs had whined and scratched at the door and had generally been very ill at ease at his sensed but unseen presence. Now he haunted, and how he hated the word, the long gallery, where paintings of long-dead kings looked down at him from the dusty shadows. He would have felt a lot more kindly towards them if he hadn't met a number of them gibbering in various parts of the premises. Varence had decided that he had two aims in death. One was to get out of the castle and find his son, and the other was to get his revenge on the duke but not by killing him, he decided, even if he could find a way, because an eternity of that giggling idiot's company would lend a new terror to death. He sat under a painting of Queen Bemery, 670 to 722, whose rather stern good looks he would have felt a whole lot happier about if he hadn't seen her earlier that morning walking through the wall. Lorenz tried to avoid walking through walls. A man has his dignity. He became aware that he was being watched. He turned his head. There was a cat sitting in the doorway, subjecting him to a slow blink. It was a mottled grey and extremely fat. No, it was extremely big. It was covered with so much scar tissue that it looked like a fist with fur on it. Its ears were a couple of perforated stubs, its eyes two yellow slits of easy-going malevolence its tail a twitching series of question marks as it stared at him. Grebo had heard that Lady Felmet had a small white female cat and had strolled up to pay his respects. Varence had never seen an animal with so much built-in villainy. He didn't resist as it waddled across the floor and tried to rub itself against his legs, purring like a waterfall. Well, well, said the king vaguely. He reached down and made an effort to scratch it behind the two ragged bits on top of its head. It was a relief to find someone else besides another ghost who could see him. And Grebo, he couldn't help feeling, was a distinctly unusual cat. Most of the castle cats were either pampered pets or flat-eared kitchen and stable habitués, who generally resembled the very rodents they lived on. This cat, on the other hand, was its own animal. All cats gave that impression, of course, but instead of the mindless animal self-absorption that passes for secret wisdom in the creatures, Grebo radiated genuine intelligence. He also radiated a smell that would have knocked over a wall and caused sinus trouble in a dead fox. Only one type of person kept a cat like this. The king tried to hunker down and found he was sinking slightly into the floor. He pulled himself together and drifted upwards. Once a man allowed himself to go native in the ethereal world, there would be no hope for him, he felt. Only close relatives and the psychically inclined, Death had said. There weren't many of either in the castle. The Duke qualified under the first heading, but his relentless self-interest made him about as psychically useful as a carrot. As for the rest, only the cook and the fool seemed to qualify, but the cook spent a lot of his time weeping in the pantry because he wasn't being allowed to roast anything more bloody than a parsnip, and the fool was already such a bundle of nerves that Varence had given up his attempts to get through. A witch now. If a witch wasn't psychically inclined, then he, King Varence, was a puff of wind. 
he had to get a witch into the castle, and then he'd got a plan. In fact, it was more than that. It was a plan. He spent months over it. He hadn't got anything else to do except think. Death had been right about that. All that ghosts had were thoughts, and although thoughts in general had always been alien to the king, the absence of any body to distract him with its assorted humours had actually given him a chance to savour the joys of cerebration. He'd never had a plan before, or at least one that went much further than, let's find something and kill it. And here, sitting in front of him, washing itself, was the key. Yeah, pussy, he ventured. Grebo gave him a penetrating yellow stare. Cat, the king amended hastily, and backed away, beckoning. For a moment, it seemed that the cat wouldn't follow, and then, to his relief, Grebo stood up, yawned, and padded towards him. Grebo didn't often see ghosts, and was vaguely interested in this tall, bearded man with the see-through body. The king led him along a dusty side corridor and towards a lumber room crammed with crumbling tapestries and portraits of long-dead kings. Grebo examined it critically and then sat down in the middle of the dusty floor, looking at the king expectantly. There's plenty of mice and things in here, do you see? said Berenz. And the rain blows in through the broken window. Plus, there's all these tapestries to sleep on. Sorry the king added, and turned to the door. This was what he had been working on all these months. When he was alive, he had always taken a lot of care of his body, and since being dead, he had taken care to preserve its shape. It was too easy to let yourself go and become all fuzzy around the edges. There were ghosts in the castle that were mere pale blobs. But Varenz had wielded iron self-control and exercised. Well, had thought hard about exercise and fairly bulged with spectral muscles. Months of pumping ectoplasm had left him in better shape than he had ever been, apart from being dead. Then he'd started out small with dust motes. The first one had nearly killed him, in a manner of speaking, but he'd persevered and progressed to sand grains, then whole dried peas. He still didn't dare venture into the kitchens, but he had amused himself by oversalting Felmut's food pinch at a time, until he pulled himself together and told himself that poisoning wasn't honourable, even against vermin. Now he leaned all his weight on the door, and with every microgram of his being, forced himself to become as heavy as possible. The sweat of autosuggestion dripped off his nose and vanished before it hit the floor. Grebo watched with interest, as ghostly muscles moved on the king's arms like footballs mating. The door began to move, creaked, then accelerated and hit the doorway with a thump. The latch clicked into place. It bloody well had to work now, Varenz told himself. He'd never be able to lift the latch by himself. But a witch would certainly come looking for her cat, wouldn't she? In the hills beyond the castle, the fool lay on his stomach and stared into the depths of a little lake. A couple of trout stared back at him. Somewhere on the disc, reason told him there must be someone more miserable than he was. He wondered who it was. He hadn't asked to be a fool, but it wouldn't have mattered if he had, because he couldn't recall anyone in his family ever listening to anything he said after Dad ran away. Certainly not Grandad. His earliest memory was of Grandad standing over him, making him repeat the jokes by rote and hammering home every punchline with his belt. It was thick leather, and the fact that it had bells on didn't improve things much. Grandad was credited with seven official new jokes. He'd won the honorary cap and bells of the Grand Prix des Idiots Blithering at Ankh Morpork four years in a row, which no one else had ever done, and presumably that made him the funniest man who ever lived. He had worked hard at it. You had to give him that. The fool recalled with a shudder how... At the age of six, he timidly approached the old man after supper with a joke he'd made up. It was about a duck. It had earned him the biggest thrashing of his life, which even then must have presented the old joker with a bit of a challenge. 
You will learn, my lad, he recalled, with every sentence punctuated by jingling cracks, that there is nothing more serious than jesting. From now on, you will never. The old man paused to change hands. Never, never utter a joke that has not been approved by the guild. Who are you to decide what is amusing? Marry, let the untutored giggle at unskilled banter. It is the laughter of the ignorant. Never, never, never let me catch you joculating again. After that, he'd gone back to learning the 383 guild-approved jokes, which was bad enough, and the glossary, which was a lot bigger and much worse. And then he'd been sent to Ankh, and there, in the bare, severe rooms, he'd found that there were books other than the great, heavy, brass-bound monster fun book, there was a whole circular world out there, full of weird places and people doing interesting things, like singing. He could hear singing. He raised his head cautiously and jumped at the tinkle of the bells on his cap. He gripped the hated things hurriedly. The singing went on. The fool peeped cautiously through the drift of meadowsweet that was providing him with perfect concealment. The singing wasn't particularly good, the only word the singer appeared to know was la, but she was making it work hard. The general tune gave the impression that the singer believed that people were supposed to sing la 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 in certain circumstances and was determined to do what the world expected of her. The fool risked raising his head a little further and saw Magrat for the first time. She had stopped dancing rather self-consciously through the narrow meadow and was trying to plait some daisies in her hair without much success. The fool held his breath. On long nights, on the hard flagstones, he had dreamed of women like her. Although, if he really thought about it, not much like her. They were better endowed around the chest. Their noses weren't so red and pointed, and their hair tended to flow more. But the fool's libido was bright enough to tell the difference between the impossible and the conceivably attainable, and hurriedly cut in some filter circuits. Magrat was picking flowers and talking to them. The fool strained to hear. Here's Woolly Felbot, she said, and Treacle Wormseed, which is for inflammation of the ears. Even Nanny Og, who took a fairly cheerful view of the world, would have been hard put to say anything complimentary about Magrat's voice, but it fell on the fool's ears like blossom. And Five-Leaved False Mandrake, Sovereign against fluxes of the bladder. Ah, and here's old man's frog bit. That's for constipation. The fool stood up sheepishly in a carrion of jingles. To Magrat, it was as if the meadow, hitherto supporting nothing more hazardous than clouds of pale blue butterflies and a few self-employed bumblebees, had sprouted a large red and yellow demon. It was opening and shutting its mouth. It had three menacing horns, an urgent voice at the back of her mind said, You should run away now, like a timid gazelle. This is the accepted action in these circumstances. Common sense intervened. In her most optimistic moments, Magrat would not have compared herself to a gazelle, timid or otherwise. Besides, it added, the basic snag about running away like a timid gazelle was that in all probability she would easily outdistance him. End of CD 3